Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. In this episode, we had a masterclass on gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors by endocrine and trauma surgeon Dr. Daryl Gray. Dr. Gray is an associate professor of surgery at Western in London, Ontario, and possibly one of the most interesting people in the world. We explore his life and in particular his experience being the father of a teen television star and of course his passion, neuroendocrine tumors. Dr. Gray, thank you again for joining us on Cold Steel. Can you Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your training pathway was. Okay, great. Um, Amir and Chad, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you guys. I think it's a great venue and uh, thanks for doing this stuff for surgical education and learning for everybody. Um, I, I was born in Montreal and that's why I'm a devout Montreal Canadian fan. Uh, I have been ever since. Uh, my uh, parents moved to Medicine Hat, Alberta when I was just uh, probably less than a year old. And I grew up in a little town called Medicine Hat. It's in the south south uh, east corner of Alberta. Um, grew up with horses all my life. My dad was an organic chemist. He worked at the Defense Research Establishment in Suffield. But uh, so we were always involved in science and animals and things. And uh, did my high school there. And then I decided to travel the world a little bit more and expand my horizon. So I um, was accepted into university at the University of Western Ontario. It was called that then. Now it's called Western. I uh, did my sciences there, bachelor of science degree, and uh, got into medical school there as well. Um, finished my medical school training, uh, went, completed a residency at uh, Western in London, uh, general surgical five-year program. And then I um, got accepted down to Ann Arbor, Michigan, the University of Michigan Hospitals with Dr. Norm Thompson, the master of endocrine surgery. So I uh, completed an endocrine surgery fellowship uh, with him, which was unbelievable. Torn between endocrine surgery and trauma surgery. I actually applied to several trauma fellowships as well, because I didn't know which one I really wanted to do. But after experiencing a couple of days down there with Norm Thompson, I came home and reflected and said, I'm going to do this instead. So then I came back onto staff at uh, Western in uh, 1997. Um, and I've been practicing there ever since my practice, I, I was the director of the trauma program, believe it or not, for the first 15 years there. And, um, now I, uh, you know, explore, I do acute care surgery. I do a lot of endocrine surgery. I do a lot of neuroendocrine tumors, adrenals, uh, you know, uh, functional pancreatic tumors. And it's, a uh, it's a great practice. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know you trained with Dr. Thompson, but that, that makes total sense for, for sure. 
um, you know, we're hoping to, to take a bit of a deep dive into gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors with you. But but first, I want to talk, if it's okay with you, a little bit about your your life, um, you know, outside maybe of, of the hospital, which uh, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, and I realize nothing's as perfect as it looks from the outside, but your life looks amazing to most of us across the country. You, as you point out, you know, you own and you certainly ride horses. My understanding, if I remember correctly, is you play polo. I know you fly uh, and you can land on your on your ranch. I'm curious, how did you um, not only develop such wide sort of interests, but how did how did you nurture them and how did you maintain them with being such a busy clinical guy at work? Um, yeah, great questions. Um, I I sleep uh, not as much as most people. I sleep more than you, Chad. I'm sure, because I've heard you don't sleep much. Um, growing up. My dad flew planes. We also had horses with uh, uh, all my life. I rode all my life Western and then out in London, went into other things. Um, and so I was passionate about flying. When I finished my residency, uh, I took a year of, as a research fellow. And during that time, I got my private pilot's license. And me and my buddy, my family doctor buddy, uh, did, did our licenses together. And then we actually ended up buying a plane. So we fly, uh, we enjoy flying. I, I find it uh, fascinating. At the peak of polo, our kids are all grown up and, and gone now and I'm getting too old to play polo because if I fall off a horse, I might not get back on one. So, but at the peak, we had 17 horses out here. We had uh, you know two big horse trailers. We travel up to Toronto or New York or down to Detroit and play polo with uh, uh, you know four kids and two of us, so, so uh, six people. And it was great. And, you know, besides that, Chad, just, you know, I also coached uh, my three boys in hockey. I was either a coach right. or a trainer for 17 years. We won four Ontario championships during those times. So between all that other stuff and practices two times a day, sometimes at five in the morning or whatever, and call and trauma team leader, it was busy. And you organize your time. You don't watch TV. Um, you go to bed at a decent time so you can get up in the morning and, and continue your work. And it's organization, organization, organization. Or else it doesn't yeah, fly. Yeah, I think that's that's a common theme among you know all the hyper performers that we get to talk to, uh, luckily, and, and learn from on, on this show. Um, it, it makes me think of jo Jocko Willink yet again, who you know, you probably know as a Navy SEAL who does a lot of motivational and organizational stuff. And he, uh, he has this relatively well-known saying, I don't think it's unique to him, but you, you obtain freedom through, you know, basically through organization and, and doing a lot of the things that, that you just mentioned. So it all makes sense. I, I remember about 20 years ago, maybe I'm off a little bit in that date. Um, you were followed around a little bit for sort of a TV show. I don't know if the docudrama is the right, yes. right word, yes. but yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. And, and what was that experience like being, being stalked by a camera for a bit? It was absolutely fascinating. So that show was called the surgeons and it was through the discovery channel and it was around 2004 or so. And uh, what they did on the, each episode is they followed a surgeon around and they saw what their life was inside and outside of the hospital. And uh, these guys showed up uh, one day and uh, there was a cameraman, a producer and a sound uh, 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 sound man. And they started in the morning and they just started following me around and they followed me through the hospital into operating rooms down to emerge. 
and then out to my life uh, outside with my kids. And it was, it was amazing. These guys, and I'm telling you, when they showed up, it was, it was probably one of the busiest. It was, they showed up on a Friday, I think. And it was probably one of the busiest Fridays I've had. So I was in the operating room and I was a trauma team leader and I was a general surgeon on call that day. And so we were in and out of the operating room and down to see traumas and then back up to the operating room and then down to emerge to see emerge patients. And by nine o'clock at night, we were operating on a bleeding gastric tumor. This poor lady, she had a tumor that was bleeding and we were doing a palliative procedure on her. And uh, by nine at night, I'm stand, sitting outside the operating room on the gurney this lady was with. And I said, are you guys, are you guys going to stick around for this? And they said, well, we're going to stick around for a little while, but honestly, Dr. Gray, we're exhausted and we have to go to bed for a while. And I said, do you, do you understand that we have filmed three times as much footage on you today than we do usually in two or three days with the surgeon? He said, I don't even know what we're going to do with all this stuff. So these poor guys, I, I, they, they finally left. They said, we just have to go. We're, we're done. And uh, so they came back the next day and they, you know, they came out and looked at the horses. They were watching me ride. They went out to the airplane. We flew around a little bit. They weren't allowed to fly with me. Their insurance didn't cover that, but they, they wanted to, you know, film that. It was fascinating. It was really, it was, wow. it, was a, it was a great documentary. It was a great series. If you ever get a chance to see it, they made me, they came down and took pictures of me. They made me the poster child. I was like, my poster was on bus stops it. and buses in Toronto it. and everywhere. Yeah, that was pretty I love cool. It. That's fantastic. You, you know, it's interesting. We, we've been talking about doing that in various formats, sort of follow a surgeon around for 24 hours, either with a reporter or even doing some podcast element of it. And there's a, a couple of things maybe, you know, 15 years later that, that are interesting. I, I do worry about, and I don't know what you think about this a little bit, but um, sort of the public perception that maybe that's unsafe in terms of how we work. And so we've never triggered it. And of course, the medical legal side of it too now is very different, I would argue as well. But, um, you know, we'd love to do it and maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bug you a little bit for your insight. The, yeah, you, the have other to thing, nail, you, yeah. you have to nail on the head there with the medical legal stuff and uh, signing releases for everybody. It was a lot of work for those guys. The producer was running around. And I oh, think I the, the, whole, the whole series actually probably got shut down because of that insurance slash medical legal part of it it just uh-huh. became a little too difficult for production crews to do that in canada maybe in other right. countries but i think canada is prohibitive right oh that's interesting i you know i know in some of these uh, trauma and i'm sure you do too uh, acute care surgery shows that intermittently pop up in the u.s they get these waivers of consent for everything in their in their department uh, but you're yes. right in canada we we can't do that that's true um, yeah. I, the, the, the sort of the second last sort of personal or social part I was hoping you're willing to go into is I, I know we all know we have four amazing kids and, and they're all um, uh, doing great and, and uh, interesting to talk about. But we particularly wanted to ask you about your son, Johnny. Um, Nickelodeon had a, had a show and I'm sure it's probably still on called Max and Shred that was a massively popular show. And, and Johnny was a, a, um, a sort of center and and uh, up front in, in that show i'm curious what that was like for him we're curious what that was like for you and you know i know you have lots of great stories surrounding that that uh, that whole scenario but uh um yeah just curious how that all went yeah a fantastic experience for him um johnny was our youngest son our third our child 
uh, amazing hockey player, great football player, unbelievable sports guy. I thought he was going to be a, a hockey player. But uh, one, one day there was an advertisement that came out internationally around the world for um, a, uh, a audition to become the junior roving reporter for the King's Elephant Polo Tournament in Thailand. And the Elephant Polo Tournament is a huge, huge thing. There are princes and queens and, and uh, politicians and major sports people come to it to raise money for these elephants that are sort of street elephants and they don't get food fed well so they raise money for them well johnny put in a two-minute video and because we were playing polo out here it included that and he actually got accepted as the uh junior reporter worldwide so uh jacqueline my wife and johnny went to thailand for a week and a half and did this venue and he i didn't think that he could be, be a good uh, presenter on TV or camera or, you know, speak well. He was kind of a rough and tumble hockey kid. And he, they loved him so much that uh, he was on the Australia Today show with a lady from Australia Today showing her how to play polo on an elephant. And everyone said, this kid is an absolute natural at this. You should get him into this business. So we decided to do that. And when we came home, like when Jacqueline said that, I said, are you kidding? I said, they're talking about Johnny? Like, really? So no, no kidding. We did. And we got him an agent and got up, got him up to Toronto and I would fly him. So for every show he ever got, we would probably do 20 to 30 auditions. And these auditions would be five minute auditions up in Toronto. And I would fly up to Toronto Island Airport, land, go down, audition for like seven minutes get him out to the airport again, fly home or drive up, drive back. It was a lot of work to do that. Wow. But he became, he became a natural, nat, natural in this. And he got a, a show, um, Paranormal Witness. And then he was on another show, YTV called Androids. Then he got the show on Max and Shred called, and he was Max for two or three seasons. Uh, then he did three films, um, the Bruno and Boots, George Corman uh, book series. They did three films, Bruno and Boots. And he was the Bruno. He was the main actor. And now he does, uh, um, he's on CTV with uh, Jason Priestley on, on Private Eyes. He does probably six episodes a year with them. And it, what I find fascinating was this. When you sit, sit watching him, he's just a regular kid. And he's kind of, you know, joking around and, and fooling around when the camera isn't running. And then when that director says action, it's a whole different kid. It's unbelievable how it happens. And I just, I still am fascinated to watch that when he does it. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the, wow. the natural tendencies he has for it. It was an incredible experience for him. Worldwide experience. He was on another show called ride. We went over to Northern Ireland filmed for uh, four weeks um, to do these series of called ride. And it was fascinating for him. He's traveled all over the place, down to California, down to the kids awards and stuff. It's been, it's been a great experience for him. Wow, that's that's a fascinating story. You know, he's a he's a good looking, smart, talented guy. So I guess we all shouldn't be surprised by his success. But then, you know, that certainly um, also reflects on on you and your wife as well. I, I'm curious, yeah. what what were some of the challenging aspects besides scheduling and time in that uh, that voyage? Uh, well, scheduling and time was quite a nightmare. There's no question about that. Uh, keeping, keeping, trying to keep Johnny on track educationally, 
Um, you know, they do have school during times that they're not filming and they have little uh, clinics, right. you know, or a classroom. They have a dedicated teacher, but it was a struggle. It was a big struggle. In fact, when when Johnny finished grade 12, he actually didn't graduate because he was just filming so much. He didn't have enough courses. So we, in fact, had to finish school after that, which he's done. He's now in he's now in university. He's doing TV production and stuff like that. He loves it. Um, but that was a big challenge for us. It was another big challenge to keep him grounded. If you can imagine a, a 14 year old kid, 15, that, you know, girls are, are lined up waiting for him when he comes out the door and, um, you know, they're make they make, they're making money. And, um, it, it's very hard to, you know, keep him grounded. You know, the, the stories of, you know, just guys like Justin Bieber kind of going off the rails in this world of TV and fandom and, you know, Instagram and, and uh, Twitter's, it, it was difficult. And it took a while to get him sort of grounded back again into him understanding sort of stuff as he matured. It almost feels like you've been living a several lives uh, in one. You know, you've, you've written lots of interesting things too. And in particular, one of the things that I think Dr. Ball and I loved was the pieces that you've written about um, Roscoe Reed Graham for both the eponymous Roscoe magazine uh, that was published by CAGS, um, as well as within the Journal of Trauma. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Roscoe and, and why you're so fascinated by him? Roscoe, uh, Roscoe Graham, I think, epitomizes uh, a, a surgeon. Um, he had it all, even though it was back in the early 1900s, like 1913, I think he went to school. He was born in 1890. But he's a, he's a, a, he epitomizes a surgeon that says, number one, I'm going to take care of my patients first and foremost. Number two, I'm not going to accept uh, status quo. And there has to be different things that we can do and help our patients to get better improvement. And, and sure, you know, surgery was very basic back then, but he, he epitomized that. And, you know, he had, and the other reason I really, I find him fascinating is he grew up, my farm is just outside of London and it is probably about uh, two minutes away for, from where Roscoe Graham grew up. He grew up in Lobo, which is a, right now Lobo has about five houses and a gas station. Um, and that's where he grew up with his dad as a family doctor, uh, you know, traveling around on a horse and cart, seeing his patients. Um, he had two other brothers who all both went into medical school as well. But Roscoe, you know, he worked hard. He went to Toronto, studied as a surgeon, became a surgeon. And then I think like most surgeons that became, well, a lot of surgeons that became, uh, you know, ex excelled in their field he went to war. He went to World War One, and he was in the uh, Royal Canadian Medical Corps. He was then in, on the uh, Number Four General Hospital in London, England, and he trained there. and And he also traveled the world to study and learn. He went to England. He went to uh, Bern, Switzerland, and he, you know, he he tried to improve his craft and trade by education and learning. And he had to travel around the world to get that uh, back then. And, you know, one of the fascinating things is because uh, I love I'm fascinated by endocrine surgery. I absolutely love it. And one of the coolest parts of endocrine surgery, besides pheochromocytomas, which I find fascinating, is insulinomas. It's a beautiful diagnosis. It's a beautiful workup and it's a beautiful curative treatment for a lot of people. And Roscoe Graham 
because Banting and Bast in Canada figured out about insulin, then it became clear that there was something else going on and it was an insulinoma. They had no idea really. But Roscoe Graham took a, a young lady, you know, 30 year old lady who had these coma episodes and said, there must be something going on with insulin and did a blind operation. Uh, and he, there was two others that did blind operations before, but never found anything. But Roscoe Graham did a blind laparotomy, found an insulinoma, took it out and the lady lived for another you know 30 40 years after that and so he he was the first guy in the world to take out an insulinoma a guy from lobo ontario just down the road i thought that was fascinating i think that's even more cool than his graham patch but then you know he went on and he didn't take the status quo and he said you know with these people that came in with perforated ulcers which was very very common back then and and you know was common up until you know 30 years ago, it was a pretty common operation when I was a medical student. He, he said, why, why, are we, why are we doing you know, gastric resections on people with a perforated ulcer? Our, our rates of complications and mortality are massive. There has to be a better way. And he conceptualized and he thought about it. And he, he said, you know, less is more. And he made a Graham patch. He took three cat gut sutures. He put it across the hole. He took momentum, whether it was free or fixed, plugged it in the hole, and his outcomes were, were unbelievable. And here's this guy from Lobo, Ontario, trained in Canada, trained in Toronto, who if you go to any surgical textbook, probably in the world, even though you can't read everything, you'll see his name in there saying, this is, this is the guy that taught you how to do or put in a Graham patch. Absolutely fascinating. You know, and, and as typical master surgeons, he continued on with education. Um, he became the head of the division of surgery, the first surgical division in, in Toronto General Hospital. He um, was the president of the, I think, I think it was called the Canadian Association of Clinical Surgeons. I, might, I think that might be Canadian Association of General Surgeons now. But, you know, he, he was a pioneer of all that stuff and innovation, and he was a compassionate surgeon. So... He epitomizes, he's like my role model. He's the guy I want to be. Yeah, ab absolutely. You, you know, when, when Morad Hamid was conceptualizing the, the, the Roscoe uh, journals for, for CAGS, we, he and I spent a lot of time trying to come up with what we thought was, was the right name. And, and obviously, we, we called it Roscoe at the end of the day for all the reasons that, that, you, that you mentioned. It's, it's amazing to learn more about his, his career and I agree. He should be a mold for all of us, eh? Like he should be the model yeah. in this country specifically. Totally. Yeah. It was a, a it was a brilliant decision for you guys, for Murad and you to decide to make that to that journal named Brasco. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it was so brilliant on our part, but he's certainly a, a brilliant guy. You, you know, the other thing that the other person that you know, sorry, I think about when I I think about the fusion of trauma and endocrine is Dave Feliciano, who obviously, as yeah. you know, Neil and I are. Neil and I are biased too, and you, you know him well, but, you know, if you ask him what his passion is over his entire almost 40 year career, it's always neuroendocrine tumors. It's not actually injury, although he's obviously superb at it and has changed that field forever. Um, so I, I, I think of you, you two guys in, in a similar light. I, I'm curious just to go back before we go deep on, on uh, GI neuroendocrine tumors to, to trauma. What is it about injury and, and trauma that, that you like so much? And, and I'm curious because certainly the fusion for me of HPB and trauma is interesting because the patient populations are so dichotomous. The, 
way you talk to those patients, what their problems are. Obviously, they're both extremely surgical, but very, very, very different. And I enjoy that 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 variety. I think that most people probably don't. It'd be hard to convince an HPV surgeon to do trauma or or, or vice versa. So it's, it makes I think probably me a little bit weird. I, I'm curious if you feel that same way or or how you process those two worlds. Yeah, that it's a that's a great question, and and I you know Dr. Feliciano, um, you know master surgeon. Uh, it, my my philosophy is this: I, I actually call endocrine surgery gentleman's surgery because it's a very finesse. It's nice. You think about things. You approach it in a very analytical way. Uh, you take your time, and it's a beautiful outcome. And then trauma is the absolute opposite. Where you know I don't like to do the the ortho adage like bone broke me fix, but uh, gunshot wound me take to OR, and it's fascinating surgery. So. In one aspect, you're taking in endocrine surgery, you're taking a patient and you're you're trying to cure them from some debilitating functional tumor, and you're very successful doing that. And in trauma, you know, you you see this patient that you know clearly needs operative intervention, and you don't know what it is that's going on sometimes. You're a bit blinded by it, but it's the most exciting, uh, fascinating uh, part of your surgery day when that comes, that sort of patient comes in the door and you have to make these split second decisions and they can be life altering for patients and you don't have time to, you know, pontificate and think and scan and study and plan. And you have to you sometimes fly by your bootstraps. And that's a fascinating, exciting uh, factor in my life of surgery. I, I, I like that. Um, I, I like the fact that you have to think very fast on your feet. You have to plan as you're going. Um, you have to try to stay two or three steps ahead of, of your patient as you move them through the trauma pathway in your hospital from you know the trauma bay to the uh, operating room to maybe to interventional, maybe to ICU, maybe back to the operating room, you know, into the ortho room. Uh, the whole forethought planning in a, in a very fast-paced system, I, I find very exciting. And that's why I love both of those fields. Absolutely love them. It's, you know, our, our trauma systems because of our injury prevention and because of our cars being so safe and, you know, unfortunately guns and knives are still there, but, um, you know, we've decreased our trauma laparotomy rates significantly, but in the heydays when I was being a resident, you know, for the first 15 years on staff, it was absolutely fascinating to be a trauma surgeon then. I love the term gentleman surgery. That's that's fantastic. And if you know, I, I always learned so much from you, no matter what you speak about over many, many years. But that may be my favorite thing you've ever taught taught, taught us for sure. I, I, I love it. You know, I, my 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 mind my mind immediately goes to uh, uh, the vision of you in, in Guy Ritchie's mo uh, movie, the the, the gentleman, because I could I could totally see you in, in that in that movie for sure. It's fantastic. So well, maybe I we, should maybe yeah. maybe I'll trademark that. <laughs> yeah, well, you should, you should absolutely, and and Dave Feliciano would love it too. There's no, there's no doubt. Um, let let's transition a little bit into uh, gentleman surgery, um, and and see if we can pull out some of your expertise, particularly for our, for our trainees and our our, uh, our general surgery colleagues. So I, I'm curious if you could start us off with um, sort of broadly how you define uh, a GI neuroendocrine tumor and how that sort of compared to or contrasted with carcinoid in particular. 
Yeah, great. Uh, that's a great uh, segue into the neuroendocrine tumor. So, you know, uh, originally, um, you know, again, dating back to 1800s or early, early 1900s, um, these, these tumors of small bowel, predominantly appendix were found. And no one could really tell what they were, I think, because of the you know inability for pathologists to really make good, good diagnosis in those days. And you know, neuroendocrine tumors became a, a malignancy of the enterochromaffin cells, um, which are present in almost present in, everywhere in, in epithelial lined um, organs in the body. And um, and they were trying to describe them back in the 1890s again. And, and Orpendorfer was the first. I think they called it carcinoids, carcinoids. It was a K, K-A-R-Z-I-N-O-I-D-E. And he called them carcinoids because they were cancer-like. And they were different than the adenocarcinomas that they were finding. And they weren't as aggressive and they weren't slow. So they called them cancer-like tumors. And hence was born the term carcinoid. And then term, term then bore the term carcinoid syndrome, where you have you know serotonin outputs that are causing cardiovascular collapse and the symptoms of a carcinoid syndrome. Um, but in the last you know 15, 20 years, the term carcinoid has been tried. We've tried to remove that from the terminology, not only from surgeons but also family doctors and and oncologists and endocrinologists because it's a misnomer. And because of the term carcinoid, surgeons historically would say, oh, this is just a slow growing tumor. We're not gonna do anything about it. Uh, don't worry too much about it. It's not gonna cause a lot of problems. And, you know, Chad and Amir, even, even now uh, I hear, you know, I get referrals from, you know, other places where the surgeon has been reluctant to operate on these because they're slow growing, they're not gonna cause you problems. And that was sort of the education. So the terminology, we've tried to actually eliminate the term carcin carcinoid from our vocabulary, simply for that reason. We want people to know that this is a tumor. This is a cancer. Uh, its rates of progress are variable, uh, sometimes not as aggressive as the other tumors that we see in the bowel, primarily adenocarcinoma. But to remove that, that moniker of you know carcinoid, is probably the best thing we've done from a education, uh, patient care perspective in the last 15, 20 years. And um, we now call them neuroendocrine tumors, uh, which is a way better way to treat them. Uh, they are tumors, they're cancer, they need, they need proper workup and treatment of them. Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, it also feels like by changing the nomenclature a little bit, it kind of acknowledges how different these different neuroendocrine tumors potentially behave depending on their their organ site um yes and so when like just to start us off um how, in your practice how do you typically kind of see these patients are they or how do they kind of make their way to you yeah so um a great great question uh, typically uh now nowadays with modern technology with everyone getting ct scans and ultrasounds we have really increased our rates of uh, finding neuroendocrine tumors earlier. Uh, the education of uh, CNETS Canada, you know, the, it's, this is the zebra, and that's why they have the zebra ribbon 
it's uh, you know when you think of hoofbeats hoofbeats you think of horses but sometimes you have to think of zebras in this this phenomenon so you know people with crampy abdominal pain people with diarrhea people with uh you know the carcinoid syndrome is not very common anymore because we're picking these tumors up but you know people that get uh, truncal rashes uh wheezing uh these things the doc- doctors are now picking these up uh earlier because of education in the system and the most the most common find now that I see that gets referred to me for surgical uh, uh, consultation is people getting CT scans because of more, more vague symptoms uh, that wouldn't have got CT scans before. Uh, the go-to diagnosis for family doctors now, eMERGE physicians, uh, is the CT scan. And we're picking up these neuroendocrine tumors, not the primary tumors in the small bowel, because they're usually too small to see originally on CT, the, you know, the the less than a centimeter tumor is so common in, in uh, neuroendocrine tumor size and small bowel. But we're seeing the lymph node spread, the mesenteric classic findings of the desmoplastic reaction, the, the, the stellate pattern in the mesentery. Those are, those are the ways we're really finding these now. So my practice, I'm getting these. They're almost always on a CT scan. They've been picked up early, uh, good finds. Um, our prog- our prognoses are you know our outcomes are better because of the fact that we're doing earlier screening and finding so patient pa- patient education doctors education people going online patients going online finding these sort of things and sort of cueing their doctors like do you think this is a do you think I have carcinoid syndrome is a real thing and it's it's really um, helped our helped our diagnosis and management of these patients. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable now. I think. Um... How, how often it, these things just peer, appear up incidentally on on imaging and uh, you know we have these joint GI and colorectal surgery rounds here at, um, at St. Paul's and every week almost there's there's a case where someone presents you know a, a, a CT scan with some bulky nodes and the question gets asked could this be a, could this be a carcinoid so let's say you get that referral like you get that patient that you know, they say the referral letter, typically, you know, it's always it's always a one one sentence referral. Yeah. Hey, please see this patient with carcinoid syndrome and manage. Um, how do you kind of frame that whole thought process um, when you when you get that referral? Like, how do you kind of think about it in your mind? You know, I, you know, I think they typically talk about, uh, as we've said, site of origin, grade, K67, all those types of things. But how do you kind of approach that in your mind uh, right from the moment you get that referral? Um, my approach, Amir, was great. So, so I don't like to use the term carcinoid anymore. I think we should stop using that term. We should call these neuroendocrine tumors. Um, my approach, first off, is um, I want to be as aggressive as, as I possibly can. Not even, not even seeing a CT scan, just getting that one-line referral. And I appreciate you saying that because that is the case. Um, the minute I see that referral, I think I'm going to try to. Uh, cure this person. Now, neuroendocrine tumors are probably not curable. Julie, Julie Halle always says, we're just, we're going to continue to uh, uh, treat this patient all through their life and they're not going to die of this. And, and I truly enter every uh, room to see this patient thinking, the first thing I want to think is the patient is not going to die from this neuroendocrine tumor because we have such a wide armamentarium of, of uh, what we can do um, I'm going in there uh, to fight, and we are going to see what we can do. Now, sometimes it's it, that's not the case, obviously, but that's my thought process when I go in to see people. 
And when I see see them in there uh, at my clinic, I kind of go through their history of physical, looking at the symptoms they're having. Uh, do they have a carcinoid type syndrome? Very, very rarely do they do that. I want to look at their CT scan. I want to look at the extent of that on the CT scan. Has anyone made the diagnosis? And if they have, so if I have pathology and I can move forward with that, um, the the best part of what I what I really look at is is their their grade. What grade of neuroendocrine tumor is this? Grade one, grade two, or grade three? And I use the KI sixty seven. As, as you know, World Health Organization scores it. The TNM classification is not the best for neuroendocrine tumors. So, uh, the WHO classification, KI sixty seven, grade ones, you know, less than less than three, grade twos, less than twenty, and grade threes greater than twenty, really has a huge bearing on their management from a surgical standpoint. the The next thing, the next thing that almost immediately enters my mind, I'm I'm a firm believer, and I'm very aggressive. Um, you know, I've presented talks on surgery first. Surgery first, I think, is important. I think people need to think about surgery first uh, before they're seeing oncology, before they're doing chemotherapy, before they're doing other things. They need to see a surgeon to say, can we do something to improve the quality of life in this patient? And I think it's very, very important. I'm, I'm very aggressive with this. Um, some people disagree to some extent, but to leave a small bowel tumor with mesenteric nodes in there saying, you know, uh, they have liver met, so let's not do this. Uh, that's not the first step for me. Um, you know, this person is going to live for five, 10, 15, 20 years with this. And if you don't do something uh, surgically at the time that you can with the desmoplastic reactions in the small bowel and the small bowel mesentery, when these people show up with a bowel obstruction because of a, a malignant process in their in their lymph nodes in the mesentery, they're non-operable. They're so they're so stuck. They're so uh, sucked in. There's such a fibrotic response. You can't you can't resect the bowel, and you can barely bypass it. Sometimes it's so tight and pulled in. So so I'm aggressive. Whether it's a cured attempt, a prolonging significant prolongation of survival attempt, or a palliative attempt. Um, I'm very aggressive about moving ahead with with surgery, with with the proper investigations, and and those proper investigations must include, you know, is this functional or not? We want to look at the breakdown products in the urine. We want to do a 25, uh, 24 hour urine five HIA uh, study to see if this is serotonin and functioning. We want to do a serum chromogranin A for sure to see what what is the baseline level, high low. Uh, tells us what's functioning. Um, with functioning tumors, we want to do an echocardiogram. You have to look at the valves of the heart. You have to get a baseline valve valve uh, study to say, is this going to progress? What can we do about it? Where are we at right now? Um, you the the studies besides this besides CT scan, octreotide scans um, have now in Fortunately, in our area, Toronto and, and Montreal both have gallium scans. The gallium scan has absolutely revolutionized our practice of the, the surgical procedures for neuroendocrine tumors. And, you know, it's not, we don't even have gallium scans across Canada, but the gallium scan is so much more sensitive than the octreotide scan. Uh, it is absolutely phenomenal what it's, it's showing us. It's phenomenal. Uh, what it leads us to be able to do from a surgical standpoint, 
the aggressive nature of the surgical standpoint, a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor uh, can be multiple. Most, uh, a lot of times, you know, 50% of the time, there's multiple tumors in the small bowel. Gallium, gallium scans are now picking up all these subcentimeter nodules. They pick up all the lymph nodes that you can surgically dissect and remove. Um, you can go to the philosophy of if I can remove the primary tumor and take out the lymph nodes, all the lymph nodes in the small bowel mesentery that are positive on the gallium scan, I can then direct my goals to the liver therapy after that, because if it's liver only disease, there's a host of treatments in, at our armamentarium that we can use to, to help these patients. So that's my, that's how I, that's how I approach these. I'm, I'm a pretty aggressive surgeon when it comes to this, but I think I've been doing it long enough that, that I, I, the process works the, the, you know, European networks back this up a lot. Um, the ENETS system backs it up. There's lots of uh, surgeons in Europe, you know, that have revolutionized this before we ever did um, with gallium scans and, and, and uh, octreotide scans. Just before we go on, because there's a lot of things that you said there that I, I wanted to just pick apart a little bit. But just to, to back it down even to a medical student or, or for, you know, junior resident kind of level, can you talk a little bit about when you're seeing them in, in clinic, are there any really important history features um, that you look for? And, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, the very commonly tested, you know, sort of exam questions like, you know, the, the, the carcinoid syndrome, the insulinoma, that kind of thing. Yeah, so for the neuroendocrine tumors in my clinic, I ask them, it's amazing how many people have chronic abdominal pain. Um, that have gone for years with it and no one's already diagnosed them. They've been, they've been, you know, labeled with uh, irritable bowel, uh, you know, chronic abdominal pain syndromes, things like that sort of going by the wayside now because everyone, everyone can get a CT scan, but that I asked them those symptoms first, uh, symptoms of GI tract neuroendocrine tumors. It'll include crampy abdominal pain. It uh, may include diarrhea. And unfortunately these are so slow growing and, um, insidious that people actually don't know that their body is changing slowly. It's like, you know, cortisol producing tumors. It happens so slowly. Some people don't even know it's happening, but they will, you know, on history, you say, do you have diarrhea? And they go, well, no. And it's like, well, how many bowel moves do you have a day? Seven. <laughs> like what? Well, that's not normal. Oh, well, I've been having those for 10 years. So I just thought it was normal. Um, those are my first go-tos. The carcinoid syndrome, like I said, is very rare, but if they do, um, they usually will present with uh, flushing. They will get a, a flushing reaction, um, sometimes with activity, uh, sometimes with foods, but sometimes just spontaneous. And uh, that would be uh, almost pathognomonic of something that's going on to have a, a, a output of serotonin that's not being metabolized in the liver as first pass effect. So, you know, when someone presents with a carcinoid syndrome, the, those are usually bad actors. The, either the liver has so much tumor in it that it's not being able to be metabolized on first pass and or uh, um, um, foregut tumors like uh, bronchial carcinoids that would have that same effect. So I'm not big on the carcinoid syndrome. It's not, it's not a, a, a common finding on my exam. Um, it's mostly the GI tract symptoms that I would focus on most for the neuroendocrine tumors of the bowel. Right. It's like the, you know, it always comes up in exams, but does it actually come up 
thankfully very often in, in real life it doesn't seem like that that that's really the case which is which is fantastic are there any physical exam things that, that you typically look for um, when you're seeing these patients in clinic uh, no not really uh, the, the physical exam findings you know it, unfortunately if they're if their liver was full of metastatic disease you could be probably have a palpable liver because they do really quite, get quite large and they can be unfortunately quite asymptomatic with that so you know hepatomegaly is is a, a fun you can see you can look for you know the truncal rash um, but if they're not having the crisis at that point in time it's not very common to see it uh, there's not much else on physical exam that I would look for in someone with a, a, a bowel, a GI tract uh, neuroendocrine tumor. Yeah, so you know clearly this seems like a very image-driven and, and biochemical-driven uh, um, type of diagnosis and, and treatment uh, algorithm. Can you talk a little bit about you know like the, you know it, it always seems to come up as a question. Um, you know, what what lab tests should we be doing, especially when we already uh, have the diagnosis often of like this neuroendocrine uh, tumor on imaging? Uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about the biochemical workup or, or laboratory workup that you typically uh, or routinely do when, when working at these patients? Absolutely. The, the biochemical workup is uh, you, ha you must do a 24-hour urine 5-HIAA. That is the metabolic byproduct excreted in the urine from functioning serotonin-producing neuroendocrine tumors. Not all of them have them. Not all. Not all of them are functional or have a functional output. But you need to you need to uh, do a 24-hour urine 5-HIA for sure to see if these are biochemically active. Um, because from a, uh, a treatment standpoint and a surgical standpoint, that's very important to know. The other thing you want to do is a serum chromogranin A. Uh, it's best to do off-proton pump inhibitors that can that can uh, make false elevations. But the serum chromogranin A is important to get. It will tell you not only the baseline of your patient, but also you can use if it's high or elevated. It can be used as a tumor marker for these neuroendocrine tumors. So both of the both the 24-hour urine 5-HIA serum chromogranin A can be used as baselines, and then to see how how is my treatment affecting. How, is, how effective is my treatment for my patient uh, with surgery, with long-acting somatostatin analogs? Am I able to decrease the 5-HIA? Am I able to stay, stabilize or baseline or decrease my serum chrome and granina? So those are the biochemical markers we can use to follow our patients and continue to direct our treatment for our patients uh, uh, based on those levels. Those are the, those are the two main biochemical uh, studies I would do. Okay. And let's let's go back to the imaging thing because I think that was such an important um, point that you brought up about the the, the gallium um, studies. But is that is that sort of your go-to thing, or how do you sort of think about CT, MR, and then of course there's always the the functional studies like octreotide scan. Yeah, so I, I get to live in a bit of an ideal world because our center does so much neuroendocrine tumors, and Toronto is active, and Sherbrooke, Quebec have the ability to do a dotate. Gallium 68 dotate uh, PET CT PET scans, and like I said, it it is it has um, revolutionized the neuroendocrine tumor process. It has made octreotide scans obsolete in some centers. Uh, some nuclear medicine departments don't even do octreotide scans anymore. Um, it is like uh, the, the the Cadillac of uh, uh, functional imaging of these neuroendocrine tumors. 
And that is my go-to now. If I am unable to do a gallium scan, I would be unhappy with that. Uh, I would do octreotide scans as the poor cousin of the gallium scan, but I really wouldn't be happy in surgical management of it. It is now uh, through Cancer Care Ontario in Ontario, uh, you can apply for gallium scans. And one of the check boxes that gets you an automatic go to get a gallium scan is, are you planning surgical resection of this uh, tumor based on your gallium scan? And if you check that off, you get an automatic scan for that. It has revolutionized our field. Uh, we would operate on people. We would take out their small bowel tumors. We would take out their pancreatic tumor. We would take out their lymph nodes that we saw in our triotide scans. And we thought we'd you know, pat ourselves on the back. We've done such a great job, guys. We've basically cured this person. And then when gallium scans came out, these people were going for gallium scans and we'd see other small bowel tumors. So we'd see lymph nodes that are positive. We'd see liver, liver uh, mats. We'd see bone mats that we did not see on CT or MRs or octreotides. We didn't see them. They're all negative. So unfortunately, you know, we kind of, it kind of deflates your bubble that thinks you're all that good and a, you know, a bag of chips and, and kind of humbled you to say, oh, we, we aren't as good as we thought, but let's keep going with this because now that we have gallium scans, this is even better um, to be able to plan surgical resection, to be able to plan further treatments. It's my go-to. Um, for high-grade neuroendocrine tumors, so for, for the residents and, and medical students, if you have a biopsy that shows that, you know, from a liver met that this is grade three neuroendocrine tumors, so KI-67, you know, greater than 20%, they'll be 60 or 70%, very high-grade. Uh, the gallium scans do not work for high grades. An FDG PET scan would be the go-to uh, uh, study on the grade three tumors. So grade one, grade two, go to the gallium scan, uh, absolute must in my opinion, and, 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 and now becoming you know, worldwide. Um, grade threes, go to the FDG PET scan. Oh, uh, so the, the multiplicity, the multiple tumors in the small bowel, again, for, for neuron tumors in the small bowel, they're more frequent, the farther down the bowel you get. So they're less common in the jejunum, much more common in the ileum. Uh, you will find them. Uh, I, I don't know the actual stat on that, but um, at least at least 20% of the time, you will have multiple neuroendocrine tumors in the small bowel. And it is amazing how the gallium scans are now picking these up. Uh, I just did a, an operation on a man who, on the gallium scan, it looked like he either had multiple small bowel disease or he had carcinomatosis so the the omentum was so close to the small bowel they said this this guy have you know metastatic disease in his omentum so they said this is either small bowel disease or it's it's carcinomatosis we operated on him he had no carcinomatosis whatsoever he didn't have a stitch of tumor outside of his small bowel and his, his lymph nodes and he had 23 neuroendocrine tumors in his small bowel that were that were removed with good safe length of his uh, of his bowel remaining and all of his uh, all of his lymph nodes and uh, four months after that operation I repeated the gallium scan you have to wait three to four months at least uh, to have the inflammation settle down four months after his repeat gallium scan is completely clear 
So the, the game scan was incredible. Um, to talk about that, you know, you might ask me about the surgical management, whether I do these laparoscopically or, or open. I don't do them laparoscopically. I just don't. And the reason is there's no way that you're going to be able to feel a neuron contumer that is, you know, four or five millimeters in size in the small bowel. You can barely feel it with your fingers. You have to run. You have to be so careful running the small bowel and you'll pick them up. They're subtle sometimes, but you will find them if you can feel them. If you can't feel them, you will, you will miss them. And if you don't run the small bowel, you, you'll, you'll miss them. So you, you just can't go to the main tumor that you see, you know, on the old studies, like the gallium scan or the octreotide scans and CT scans, you have to carefully, carefully run that bowel. And, and now, now with surgical management, we've actually gone, become so aggressive that with gallium scans showing lymph nodes only, I will uh, dissect down to the superior mesenteric artery, dissect out the major vessels. I will clamp the vessels with uh, vascular clamps uh, in the small bowel mesentery uh, that are above the lymph nodes that I want to remove. And then we will do ICG dye. We will shoot ICG dye in after the vascular vessels are, are, are uh, clamped and look at the uh, flow through the bowel and what's enhancing and what's not and base our surgical resections margins on that or say, oh, we can't do this. We're, we're going to take out too much small bowel. The outcome would be worse for that. So, you know, we've progressed with surgical technique and, and especially with our dime scans telling us what we can and can't do. It's fascinating. Yeah. That's so exciting. I'm just going to wait for this ambulance to pass. Typical St. Yeah, Paul's. Uh, <laughs> it's a 7.30 in the morning kind of sound. Um, time to go to work. Amir. Time to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where Dr. Ball asks, Amir, have you been shot? Um, <laughs> um, so, Welcome to St. Paul's. <laughs> um, this, it's so fascinating to hear how kind of targeted and and uh, uh precise you can be doing these operations now so just walk me through um how you kind of uh, approach this in the operating room so you, so you have the patient you presumably you've got them supine uh their arms are out you, you do your laparotomy uh, and then then kind of walk me through how you systematically approach this okay so amir for the residents and residents doing their exams or, or learning the medical students that are listening actually for anybody that's listening the first thing you need to do before you ever get into the operating room is um, provide these patients with a somatostatin analog. Whether they are functional or not, whether they have metastatic disease or not, I am now an absolute firm believer in using um, a somatostatin analog to block the receptors to prevent intraoperative cardiovascular collapse in the form of a, a carcinoid crisis. It is the most terrifying thing to ever have happen to you in an operating room, and it's completely preventable. Um, so the pre-op management is very, very important. I do put these people on either sandostatin long-acting or lanreotide. Either one is fine. I make sure that they are blocked down properly um, before I operate. I then talk specifically with my anesthesiologist to tell them that this is a neuroendocrine tumor. They will always ask me whether it's functional or not, and I say, Yes or no, but it doesn't matter. I have these people blocked on a somatostatin analog. We did a great, we did a great study looking at outcomes versus carcinoid crisis versus not cardiovascular collapse versus not, and saw a benefit from the long-acting somatostatin analog. So I don't operate on these people until they have them on board. 
I make sure my anesthesiologist is 100% on board with this. He will have at least a thousand uh, mics of octreotide injectable available for this operation. If we're doing liver surgery, it will be an infusion of it. Uh, if it's bowel surgery and we're not doing any liver surgery, we don't use infusions of it, especially if they have a long-acting splenostatin analog on board that's blocking them. Um, the worst case scenario you will ever see is a carcinoid cardiovascular collapse in your operating room. Your anesthesiologist is absolutely helpless. They can give fluids, they can give pressors, they can give whatever they want, and it is they, they are absolutely unaffected. It is the worst phenomenon to ever see in a, in a, in a patient. And, and unfortunately, how do I know that? It's because I've been there. So before anything, I block them. I make sure you, me and my anesthesiologists are all on board. I make sure the octreotide's in the room. I don't want it down in block two in the, in the PIXIS system and my fingerprint doesn't work today. Now what are we going to do? Um, and that's how I start my laparotomy. Uh, when I'm operating, I, I do a laparotomy. I make sure I've followed my CT. I make sure I have reviewed my gallium scan. Absolutely. I actually go through my gallium scans with my nuclear medicine physician the day of the operation. We walk through it again. We walk through the CTs. We look at the nodes. I've, I have a, in my mind, a map of exactly how this is going to go. Um, when I open, again, thorough, thorough laparotomy, feel everything. There can be miliary, you know, two millimeter nodules in the liver that you could not see even with a gallium scan. And that changes your management sometimes. Um, thorough laparotomy, feel everything, and then complete running of the small bowel. This is a small bowel tumor, complete run right from duodenum, right around D1, D2, D3, flip up to ligament, ligamentrites, uh, D4 underneath and then run, run jejunum all the way down and then ileum. And that's where you're gonna start seeing the, the hot stuff start to pick up and you're gonna be able to find these tumors. I mark, uh, I mark the bowel with a Babcock when I find one. We continue down and keep marking them. So sometimes you're using a lot of these. Uh, once I have a good knowledge of where my tumors are in my, my small bowel, the first thing I do is say, what about the lymph nodes in the mesentery? How much mesentery do we have to remove? This is the important part. I start with my mesentery first. I don't resect bowel first. I start with my mesentery and start to take down the mesentery at the most proximal part uh, where it is going to be involving the main vessels. Now, if this is you know distal mesentery, I still take all the mesenteric nodes out. I you know ligate the mesentery first. And then I wait, if I have ICG green dye, I would shoot that. If I don't have ICG green dye, I then wait for my uh, demarcation of my small bowel. Take your time. That's why I don't staple across the small bowel first. I always wait with mesentery floating in the breeze. What's purple? What's pink? Where's my staple lines going to be for removal of the neuroendocrine tumors? If I have to take out segmental areas based on the length of bowel, I have, then I will do that. I will take out, you know, one section of, you know, a foot and a half of bowel and then move down to where the other tumors are and take out more sections of that based on the vascular spread and lymph nodes. Uh, that's my approach to those tumors. This is fantastic uh, overview. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about the fact that some of these tumors are so small that it's it can be hard to find them all. And, and that's why it's so important to have the the gallium study to kind of give you a roadmap. 
Do you do any other adjuncts to actually trying to find these tumors? You know, they, they talk, and I think it's we've, we've done this here at St. Paul's a few times where you've actually done on-table kind of enteroscopy. Is that something that you use, or is that not really necessary given how good our imaging studies are now? Yeah, great question, Amir. So neuron tumors of the small bowel are submucosal, very, very small tumors of the small bowel you won't see on endoscopy. You can do a push endoscopy on these unless they're big enough to see, you actually will miss them. Uh, endoscopic ultrasound uh, in the duodenal area, if you're looking at it, duodenal uh, neuroendocrine tumors, gastronomas <clears throat> um, are very good for that. You can pick up, you know, the millet sized gastronomas that are classic in the MEN1 type syndromes, uh, the, you know, two millimeter, three millimeter millet seed size gastronomas of duodenum. So EUS is great for up there, obviously completely impractical for small bowel. Uh, push endoscopies, on table, uh, uh, small bowel studies with uh, scopes. Again, <clears throat> not, nothing will beat your fingers. You can't beat, you can't beat the tactile feel of these. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So what about the scenario where you get into the operating room and you do find that they have lymph node disease quite down proximally on the, on the mesentery, you know, near the root of the SMA? Um, how do you sort of approach that situation? Do you, do you abort? Can you, and presumably you can't just pluck these, these lymph nodes. It really has to be a sort of an on-block lymphadenectomy. But, but how do you approach that particular situation? Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm not operating on someone that I haven't planned out this surgical procedure in a better fashion, uh, looking at their CT and geography, looking at their gallium scans, melding those together, forming a proper roadmap. I, I, I don't want to be blindsided by, uh, oh, I didn't know that lymph node was that high on the SMA. I can't take that out. So I don't want to be there, Amir. I, I prefer to be uh, planned in a better fashion. But having said that, um, when you look at these neuroendocrine tumor lymph node metastases, they are not the same animal as adenocarcinomas. They, it's, it's amazing how the desmoplastic reaction and the lymph nodes that are positive. So, so the lymph nodes are smaller than the, the mass that you're feeling always. It, from a philosophical standpoint, you need, you need to remember that. The, the, the desmoplastic reaction around these lymph nodes is significant and it, it makes it look daunting. Um, but the, the desmoplastic reaction isn't actually malignancy, it's just fibrosis. The other fa fascinating phenomenon about the lymph nodes of the neuroendocrine tumor type are they almost to a fault or almost, almost routinely uh, respect the vasculature. They do not invade into arteries. You can actually dissect out arteries and peel, peel these lymph nodes away from the arteries to get more distal. So with experience and in the hands of, uh, you know, surgeons that are adept at trying to uh, dissect out uh, not only the SMA, but also the major branches coming off of the SMA uh, into the major, you know, jejunal and ileal branches, um, it is absolutely possible to do this um, if you have the uh, knowledge to say, yes, uh, I'm not going to get into the blood vessels by dissecting these lymph nodes free. And I'm going to be able to perform a safe dissection and not compromise uh, the outcomes with, you know, completely devascularized small bowel. Uh, you need to be experienced. You need to be knowledgeable. Um, if you want to bring in one of your vascular surgery colleagues 
that uh, have their nice loops and are very, very good at dissecting vessels um, do that. I do that uh, sometimes as well. We have some very talented vascular surgeons that help me out with some of these uh, difficult cases. But to go into an operating room, Amir, and say, you know, do all this work and then say, oh, I can't take this out. I, I think that's probably poor pre-op planning to begin with. I don't think you should be there um, wondering, wondering about that. The, the other scenario that comes up a lot that you refer to is the scenario where you have a small bowel neuroendocrine tumor, but you also have liver metastases. Kind of break that down for me. How do you approach that scenario preoperatively, and uh, and you know which of these patients are you taking to the operating room, um, and how do you think about this kind of challenging scenario overall? Yeah. Again, um, I, again, I I'm a firm believer of surgery first if it's uh, if practical. Healthy people are going to live a long time with this. Their small bowel uh, is going to cause a problem down the road. With our long-acting somatostatin analogs, they're chemostatic, so these tumors kind of halt and don't grow, or they really decrease in the amount of growing, especially if they're grade one tumors. So I'm aggressive with this, and you know, based on our galleon scans, if we have if we have a, a scan that shows small bowel tumors, some lymph nodes that are resectable, and they have liver metastases. Uh, we will discuss this obviously at our neuroendocrine tumor board rounds. You do need to be discussing these. You have to have, you know, available at your rounds, um, surgeons, uh, oncologists that are, uh, that are very knowledgeable in this field. The nuclear medicine physicians are absolutely mandatory. A pathologist is mandatory that it has some sort of uh, expertise in this field as well. But our, our standpoint is this, if it's a small bowel and mets that we can, small bowel tumor with metastatic disease and the lymph nodes that we can resect, uh, what can we do about the liver lesions? There's uh, so many things we can do. We will RFA if there's one or two uh, mets in the liver uh, on table at the time of our operation. If it's more than that and they might need a lobectomy performed for uh, re total tumor removal of the liver, uh, then we will probably do that in the next case. We won't do both at the same time. It gets to be quite a large operation for some of these people. But if they're healthy and we deem it safe, we'll go ahead and do that. So we'll, we'll aggressively do lobectomies if it's one side only. We will do tumor, isolated tumor resections if there's uh, multiple tumors in both lobes. Uh, based on being safe and uh, judgment, we will do operation and RFA at the same time. Um, and our, our goal is this, well, our ultimate goal is to remove all the tumor. And if we do that, we, we, we help these people from a biochemical standpoint, from a heart valve fibrosing standpoint, from an outcome standpoint. If we are unable to take out all the liver tumor, we do try to decrease tumor load surgically, but then there's a host of other treatments at our armamentarium that we can use to do isolated liver treatment. And that, that concept is important because if you are able to say, listen, I have liver only disease now, we did an operation, we have a gallium scan, there's no other tumor in this, in this person except for the liver. Well, the host of treatments becomes uh, very large. You can do liver directed therapy with uh, chemoembolization, you can do liver directed therapy with Y90. Uh, you can do, uh, uh, put them on a long acting somatostatin analog, which they all would be on. And if the disease is stable for a year, 
and a gallium scan shows no other disease still, these people are treating our candidates for liver transplants. So, um, you know, when you have a 40 year old person that has liver only disease and you want to offer them liver transplants, it's important to make sure that you're, you know, getting the rest of the small bowel uh, tumors out and, and the lymph nodes out. So the, the goal-directed therapy to liver-only disease offers significant amounts of treatment, uh, local therapy to the liver, as opposed to systemic therapy. Systemic therapy is if they have not only liver disease, but other disease elsewhere, bones. Uh, yes, there's lymph nodes that we can take out. So that's a systemic treatment. And there's still very effective treatments for that in the form of uh, 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 PRRT, uh, lutetium radioactive uh, dote label lutetium that can we can use to treat uh, neuroendocrine tumors that are systemic. So the, the whole concept, a very important concept is, can I get this person to liver only disease? Because if I can, lots of further treatments, directed goal-directed therapy to the liver only, surgical resection, chemoembolization, Y90, direct, direct chemoembolization with it, lapidol not used as much anymore, um, uh, RFAs of new nodules coming up. Our, our interventional radiologists are on board with this. They're very, very good at it. It's a very effective treatment for these patients because ultimately you are in for, you know, a 20, 30 year treatment cycle with these patients. Yeah, it's a, it, it's fascinating to hear about all these new options that, that really kind of converts yeah, these metastatic uh, patients into almost like a chronic illness that you just have to be ready to treat with all the armamentarium of tools that, that we now have. Um, Dr. Gray, what what do you do to follow these patients? So let's say you, you have the patient, you've successfully resected their their um, small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, you're, you're happy that you've achieved an R0 resection. How do you typically follow or surveil these patients moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question, Amir, and it's changing. Um, and you know what? We honestly don't know. We don't know how to yet because our our, our modalities are changing. And with again the revolu revolutionization of gallium scans, um, the follow up historically with us, the follow up was uh, CT scans and octreotide scans, uh, usually yearly, following their twenty four hour urine five HIAs routinely doing their serum chromogranonase again at, on a yearly basis to see what was involved. That, that now, that, that screening um, system we have is now in flux and changing because of the advent of the gallium scan. Um, in an ideal world, you would be doing routine gallium scans at the one year mark and two year mark. And then nobody really knows how far to stretch that out, whether you do it at two years and then every five years, or do you follow something else? We don't know the real answers to this. But as gallium scans become more commonplace, uh, you, you know, gallium scans now, they're like, um, they're like MRIs. When I was a medical student, you had to go to Buffalo to get an MRI. You had to go to Port Huron to get an MRI. There was like one MRI scanner in all of Ontario. That's sort of like the gallium scans now. You have to go to someplace to get one. But the gallium scans are going to be, you know, commonplace. It's going to be like getting an octreotide scan in any center that wants it in the near future. Um, and now triotide will go by the wayside. And MIBG actually might go by the wayside too with it. We'll see. But um, when when that becomes commonplace, the go-to will be a gallium scan um, and following biochemical markers. 
Yeah, it's so interesting to reflect, not only hearing you talk, but just managing this disease, how far the management and the options have come, hey? like how much the understanding has changed so dramatically over the past decade or even two. It's the revolution, revolutionary changes have been with uh, modern uh, scanning techniques, modern treatment techniques. Somatostatin analogs have only been around for you know, 30 years or so, um, right. modern, modern abilities to perform interventional radiologic RFAs or surgical RFAs, uh, at the advent of, you know, even, the, even the advent of, uh, for grade three tumors, capsidabine, temozolomide, uh, sunitinib, everolimus, they, they have made unbelievable strides in the treatment of even the highest grade tumors. First of all, thank you so much for your, your time. This is really a gift to all of our listeners and and your review is, uh, has been phenomenal. The, the question is, you know, I sort of think of you um, a little bit like the most interesting man in the world. You are, you are the real life incarnation <laughs> of the Doseki man. So if, if, uh, if you were to go back and, and uh, talk to yourself and give yourself advice, maybe as a, as a trainee or as a young surgical attending, uh, what, what would that advice be? Oh, that's a great question. And uh, stay thirsty, my friends. What I would tell myself, so, so my dad, my dad always said, um, you have to do things in your day that you like doing what, what makes a good day for you. And that should be your, um, your role in life, because if you don't like what you do, you won't do well and you won't like your life. So first of all, do, do the right thing that, that pleases you. So I think I'm fortunate enough to, to find a, a niche that does that for me. And if, if I told myself, when I was a resident, it'd be probably, I, I think I would tell myself to be, um, what would I say? I think I'd say be more kind. And, and I'd be more kind to sit in probably three areas. First of all, I would say be more kind to yourself physically. Um, and the, what I'm saying is, as surgeons, we don't take very good care of ourselves. We um, damage our bodies with poor posture, with poor instruments, with poor monitors that don't go down low enough, with poor uh, you know uh, 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 loops that don't make you make you tip your head down too much. Um, you know, seventy percent of of surgeons in a study showed that they had some sort of long term disability from operating but only 15 to 20% ever actually reported. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that the senior surgeons out there right now that are hearing this are probably saying, yeah, because I, I can't feel my little finger and middle finger. Like I have numbness down both my arms. That's a, that's a debilitating problem from operating all your life and standing in the OR and hurting your back and your neck. So be, I would say one thing I'd say back then is be more kind to your body. Take better care of yourself. Don't tolerate um, people telling you that it's okay to to uh, have bad posture and and bad skills and techniques that's going to hurt your body in the long run, because you know 20 years ago you're fearless, nothing can hurt you, and um, you don't care about it. And then when you're when you're 57 like me and an old man, you go, oh my god, like like my fingers are kind of numb and my back hurts and my neck is funny and and that happens. So that's the one thing I tell myself. The next thing I tell myself is. Be more kind mentally to yourself. 
again, we as surgeons, especially in the trauma world, but, but in all surgical fields, we, we face death. We face families um, uh, that are suffering death of loved ones. We may have caused a major you know, mortality um, and we don't take care of ourselves. We don't debrief, you know, from a psychological standpoint, major traumas we've seen that have, you know, devastated you uh, mentally. So I think we, we as a, a group of surgeons need to do better with that. We need to take care of ourselves from a, a, a mental aspect in a better form because it does, it does impact you in your life. So I think that's an important point I would tell myself. If I was smart enough to listen, that's a different thing. Um, and the last thing I'd say is um, be more kind to everyone around you and your team. I think that's, uh, you know, historically, historically, I, I, I was taught by grumpy old surgeons. I shouldn't say that because they were the kindest, wisest men that I, I worked with. But from a surgical lore standpoint, you were tough. You were, you know, the go-to, um, you were the guy that had to get things done. And we didn't we didn't work well with teams then and that's all changed now and new surgeons are different and new you know new teamworks are different but you know if I said if I could have gone back 20 years ago and said listen you know in 30 years from now here's how the world's going to be so you ought to be starting to do that you ought to get on the forefront of that don't be the old grumpy general surgeon that you saw and trained with and, and that was the role model um, be a different guy than that and I think that would have held me in really good stead I think that's what I tell myself. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast dot cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on twitter at can j surge thanks again